Now, my friends, it's time finally at Mockingbird to broach that topic. You know the one, that topic. Roll the tape, Lino. I recently had a horrible realization. I only have two types of conversations with people these days. Doesn't matter if I'm talking to my wife, our UPS guy, Keith, hey, Keith, or any of the innumerable strangers I sit next to on airplanes. I talk about that topic. You know the topic I'm talking about. You don't? Well, it's, it's not the other topic. As a man, I don't feel comfortable talking about the other topic. As a guy, I feel like I should have a listening and learning role on the other topic. I'm talking about that topic, which kind of has to do with the other topic. If you're still not following me, just think about what you mostly read about on the internet, talk to your friends about, and what the news is usually all about. Yes, that topic. It's actually probably why you're watching CBS Sunday Morning. Sure, Sunday Morning's been a great show for almost 40 years, but I'm guessing some of you are watching so you can take a break from thinking about that topic. I'm sure half the audience at my stand-up shows comes to see me because I don't talk about that topic. I've seen comedian friends talk about that topic at shows and witnessed audience members with pro and against views towards that topic begin to stare at the ceiling. It's confusing and exhausting talking about that topic, right? Heck, it's confusing and exhausting trying to not talk about that topic. Am I being complicit if I don't talk about that topic? Is talking about that topic helping or just normalizing that topic? Anyway, we can talk about this later on. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim, for broaching that topic which I will discuss now uh, a little bit longer at length, but not in any further detail. I'm gonna give you two clues as to the nature of the divisions that I see right now based on what we've been use- doing on the website this year and what we've been writing about. And, uh, and then I'll sort of look at where Christ comes into it. Uh, and the first clue is that I believe we have lost our sense of smell. I'm not trying to be funny. We are inundated with images nonstop in our culture and uh, overwhelmed by the endless noise, the chatter of talking heads, the voices in our own heads uh, as, and th- those that we see on television and on podcasts and online and certainly we contribute our own noise. But we've lost our sense of smell. And what do I mean by that? You know, you arrive in New York City and one of the first things you notice is the smell, right? Uh, you notice that clearly the uh, marijuana laws have changed (laughs) since you lived here. You notice that people's um, urination habits are not all that they could be and should be. You notice that sometimes after a morning of a Saturday morning, uh, that Friday night, uh, the smells of it are still around and heaven forbid you step in uh, one of the... um, puddles. Uh, Thank you, Mayor de Blasio. Um, But we, you notice, I mean, on the way here, you don't just have to be in New York. On the way here, we stopped at a gas station in central Pennsylvania. You could smell the farm, 
You know, you could smell it. And yet our sense of smell today is, I think, woefully underdeveloped, and it's because it has everything to do with the way that we mediate our lives through technology and through screens. The screens that, we, uh, that some of you are staring at right now, Dad, um, <laughs> are, they're capable of producing, <laughs> they're capable of producing sound and images, but not yet smells. And heaven forbid they do, because that might yank us back into reality. You can abstract another person. You can categorize and judge another person if you don't have to smell them. You can float above your life the way Alan talked about if you don't have to smell another person. Now, maybe that sounds gross, but you know, one of the things that, you know, sometimes you're walking through New York and, and, and you, you smell something and you're disgusted. You know, you're like the Mindy Kaling character in Inside Out. And, um, you can't control it. You're like, oh, I gotta get out of here. Or I gotta roll down the window. Thank you, Mockingbird staff. They, um, or, uh, you know, or you're, when you're with someone you love, you, they, they smell good. You know, what is the, you, we all, our mothers, when we're babies, that, that smell. It's like, it's like a Leonard Skinner song. It is a Leonard Skinner song, actually. When I searched my, it's so funny, when I searched my iTunes library, and usually I, when, I, when I'm trying to take the temperature of some cultural observation I'm, I'm hoping to make, I try to see how often something is used as, as a verb or even located, you know, eyes and ears and see and saw and heard, tens of thousands of songs. I smell, <laughs> it's basically that smell by Leonard Skinner, and I think that's it. <laughs> Even noses don't get much play in, uh, in popular airplay because we don't want to deal with reality that of, of you know, incarnated reality that smells uh, bring to us. And so I think we've lost our sense of smell and that's just a way of saying that we're perilously disembodied and that we don't deal with other people. And the nature of many of our divisions is that we are failing to acknowledge another one's humanity. And you can do that very easily when you don't have to deal with how they smell. So get up close to whoever, I'm just kidding. Um, I'll spare you that. But if you're not allowing another person, uh, dealing with another person in the flesh, you can very easily uh, abstract them into an idea that can be rejected, that can be judged, and swiftly. Everything in life becomes, therefore, a massive head trip. And we just start to um, categorize into oblivion uh, and completely ignore the fact that almost everyone you know belongs to many different categories. I was struck uh, yesterday, a friend of mine from California wrote a uh, a tweet, and he's sitting there on a lawn in California reading... um, uh, uh, Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry. And he said, what would Wendell Berry do if he knew I was reading one of his books in a planned community next to AstroTurf, transplanted trees in a grossly outlet? Meaning like, this person probably loves Wendell Berry's thoughts on agriculturalism and you know sustainability. And yet he also is hanging out on a beautifully AstroTurfed lawn. And that's you and me. 
all of us, none of us, we know this. We don't actually fit into these categories uh, neatly. And one of the things Alan recommends in his book, How to Think, is that we not, we make sure that we belong to different types of communities. Not just our church, but our office, not just our, our family, as well as our neighborhood. And that the more different people you're thinking with, the more ability you'll have to actually talk to people who are not like you. And to ghettoize yourself into an ideological bubble really is at the heart of a lot of these divisions. Uh, when we've lost our sense of smell, one of the great things um, people say when they've lost their sense of smell is they say that everything is political. And yes, there's a sense in which that's true. Just like everything's cultural, and I believe everything is religious, everything is political. But what people mean by that, that's, you know, that's the personal is political. That's Carol Hanisch's essay, which is kind of brilliant if you've actually read it. No one's read it, at least in the last 20 years. Um, it has become, she was talking about how uh, divides in societies run through homes and the roles that men and women take on in all sorts of aspects of everyday life. The way we use the phrase, the pers- everything's political or the personal is political today, is what we really mean is I can, there is nothing I cannot use to abstract you into a category that I can judge and dismiss. There is no, your, the banana you eat, I can use that. I can use anything as long as I don't have to deal with the way you smell. I can, there's everything can be used against you to dismiss you, to judge you. When we don't have to deal with the way things smell, we confuse our narratives with reality. And the reason, it's so funny, uh, both Alan and uh, Fleming just used the word narrative and the church has the big story, the great narrative. And while I completely agree with them, and uh, that is the, what we're trying to deliver, the word narrative is so beaten up at this point. You know, Taylor Swift wanted to reclaim her narrative, you know, from the media. Good luck, Taylor. It didn't work. That last album was awful. <laughs> Do 1989 again. <laughs> um, but narrative is, I usually hear that and I think that's what, what they're really referring to is a very highly subjective projection about the world that has almost no bearing in anything that's unpleasant. Um, Alan says in his book, How to Think, if I don't have to deal with a human being as a neighbor, if I can keep them as an other, even if they are my physical neighbor, then I'll never probably realize that even though they have one, the red sign in their yard and I have a blue sign, I never have to deal with the fact that we both like the same restaurant. Or and that's a superficial one, but that we, our favorite movies are the same, but for different reasons. But usually, that they've got a parent, an aging parent that they're taking care of. Or that their heart was broken when they were 21 or that they are very, very lonely, that there's a level, an existential level underneath the policy debates that I can ignore about this person if I don't ever smell them. Am I overdoing it on the smelling thing? (laughs) Possibly. But not being in physical proximity is something that is comfortable. we can ignore the fact that just like us, that person wants to be happy. 
or we can, um, we can control the world uh, much more easily if we don't have to deal with the messy contradictions of another human being that are evident in their physical presence. If not, that's what's so great about these conferences, by the way. That's why we keep doing them, even though they're kind of a bear to organize. You know, it's not, I didn't sign up to be a party planner. Just like every clergy, every clergy person here knows what I'm talking about. Like, you know, I went to seminary, I studied all this stuff, and now I'm basically just looking at RSVP lists all day. Um, I'm, I'm throwing parties I don't really want to go to myself. Um, but this tendency to avoid smelling another person, to keep them at distance, is, is evidence of original sin. It is an impatience with, the, uh, with human complication, and in fact, even with divine presence in the world. The great, that great Egyptian lawyer and theologian, Adel Bastavros, uh, Scott Jones, if he's here, he turned us on to this quote, but he says, patience with others is love. Patience with self is hope. Patience with God is faith. We don't, we are impatient. And when we don't, we, 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 we think we can make the judgment based on two senses, usually one, and usually with one eye closed. We don't want to engage all three, it's too complicated. But to see another person, to um, deal with them in the flesh, is to... Um, almost be compelled to empathize with them. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, Take Elvis Presley's. There was a guy I said one time, he said, uh, you never stood in that man's shoes or saw things through his eyes or stood and watched with helpless hands while the heart inside you dies. So help your brother along the way, no matter where he starts. But the same God that made you, made him too. These men with broken hearts. If I could sing a song along the same line. If I could be you, if you could be me. For just one hour If we could find a way To get inside Each other's mind Oh If you could see you Through my eyes Instead of your ego I believe it'd be I believe you'd be surprised to see That you've been blind Oh Walk a mile in my shoes Walk a mile yeah, before you abuse, criticize and accuse, just walk a mile in my shoes. Now there are people on reservations and out in the ghetto. And brother, there, for the grace of God, throw you and die. Wow.
outtake from That's the Way It Is, the great movie about his Las Vegas return, and um, this poem that he quotes at the beginning, who knows who wrote it? Man, we are in New York City. Hank Williams wrote that, okay? A little, yeah, Alabama. It is an incredibly beautiful song, and basically what he's saying is, is that you cannot judge what's it to you. You cannot judge someone if you haven't walked in their shoes, if you're only viewing them through the lens of your ego. Now, what does we know about shoes if you walked in them for a while? They stink. At least mine do. Um, you know, if, you've got, if anyone's got kids, then they have uh, those, um, those, those rubber shoes that the kids wear. What are they called again? Natives? And man, those things are born to smell. And you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't decrease the love you have here for your children. It increases it. Anyway, that's another talk. We, uh, we refuse to uh, smell people because we love control. We don't have to deal with the messy reality of their life. But there is an enormous cost. And the cost of, not, of closing off your nostrils is loneliness. And if we know anything about the world, it is that it is a very, 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 very lonely place. I used to think that we overdid it. And you know, every time a study came out and said, you know what? Um, older folks, the AARP, uh, people are really lonely. And then the next week, someone would come out and be like, you know, young women in their 20s, uh, they're re really lonely. And then, uh, then it would be men in their 50s, you know, they're super lonely. And then you'd find out, you know, immigrants, they're, they're really lonely. And then you'd, you'd read something the next week, you know, clergy, they're super lonely. And then you guess what, clergy spouses, guess what they are? They're lonely as, all, as hell. Everyone is lonely. Loneliness, it's the, it's not the, no longer the age of anxiety, it's the age of loneliness. Women are lonely, men are lonely, old people are lonely, young people are lonely, we are all lonely. We are suicidally lonely. Someone asked me yesterday, what is we've been dealing with pastorally sort of in life right now? And I said, well, the real thing that I've been dealing with, if you wanna know what's happened in Charlottesville to me, it's not August 12th, which was last year, happened you know, right as I was coming back from sabbatical. What we've really been dealing with in Charlottesville is I work with UVA undergrads, and we've had two fathers, extremely affluent private jet types, uh, hang themselves this year. The, what is the refrain? No, out of the blue. No one saw it coming. We've had two su uh, suicides of, uh, of um, uh, undergraduates. And you know, this is, not, this is not the demographic that's usually affected by opioids. The, the, the risk to their life is themselves. And so that's, and, and you, the isolation that a person is undergoing, when everyone says it was out of the blue, no one saw it coming, that means the person was, yes, the mental illness was there, yes, there was all sorts of mitigating factors, but the fact is they were isolated. If no one knew, it wasn't because it wasn't happening, it was because they couldn't tell anyone. So, loneliness, uh, I believe that this is uh, part and parcel of the real divisions that we're dealing with. And one of the ways we compensate for our lack of intimate connection uh, is by that we project our emotional longings that are not being met in churches, that are not being met in families, not being met in other relationships. We project all of that emotional energy 
onto political and ideological ethnic uh, um, tribes. And so all of a sudden, these tribes that we're a part of, these greater categories that, when, that, used, to not, that used to be important but not everything, uh, they have been freighted with all of our emotional, spiritual um, weight and energy. They've become objects of religious fervor. And the more razor sharp the divides have become, the more um, religiosity is being projected onto them, misdirected. I would just call it seculosity. Hashtag for you there book coming next year. Um, uh, and so we, everyone is viciously turned on each other because uh, we're not smelling each other. And life becomes, uh, as Stephen Marsh puts it in his wonderful book, The Unmade Bed, he said, the business of correcting idealism is a parlor game in which one by one everybody leaves the room. So once you get into that quagmire, the loneliness only gets worse. This energy, it's religious, it has to do with self-justification and a desperation for love. But its magnitude, the magnitude of that emptiness, of that desire, is reflected in the sharpness of the divides. So that's the first uh, thing, uh, is that we, we've lost our sense of smell. The second um, point, the second reason we're so divided is that if we listen to Abba at all, we only listen to the hits. Um, I can't blame you. The hits are amazing. Dancing Queen, Waterloo, The Winner Takes It All. Good God. Whew. Agnetha. We hardly knew the um, SOS. These are, you know, if you can get over sort of Fernando and Chiquitita, like the, the, the rest of it's really great. <laughs> These are amazing songs, but we don't listen to the deep cuts. We don't listen to songs like Me and I. So listen to the deep cuts, all right? That is unbelievably brilliant. No one, no one of you ever listened to the ABBA lyrics, but they're Scandinavians, so they're usually talking about something heavy. 
that isn't a brilliantly written song, and Anna Freed uh, delivers it with a slightly ebullient energy that um, doesn't quite transfer uh, outside of its, it makes you move, but you don't quite get how devastating her critique is of hum, the human spirit. This is what my father referred to yesterday as a shallow, we, we, we don't like what Abba have to say. We, 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 we embrace a shallow view of human nature, not an untrue one, but a shallow view that basically says, if I can just get you to know the right things or to use the right language or to um, hear even more about my experience, then you will be able to act accordingly. We view human beings, as Jacob Smith says, as, as, as uh, you know, happy people making healthy choices. But when we forget what Anna Fried and Abba, Benny and Bjorn know, we become what my brother calls delusional Manichaeans. We reduce everyone else to a category or to a single group rather than acknowledge that we all straddle multiple divides in our person, even in fact in our every five minutes. We refuse to acknowledge that the inner ring that uh, is mentioned so much in that wonderful book, or that therefore, and therefore the perfect and deserving target of our malice and our blame, that, that that actual inner ring is empty. There's no one in it that actually you can judge with 100% correctness. And that applies even, even to the office of the presidency. Sorry. What we forget is that people are conflicted. They're divided. They're Solzhenitsyn. And uh, we are, yes, our own worst enemies. We all have our selective anthropologies. That's what it actually means to have a low anthropology is that you all have a very selective one. You believe that lots of things apply to other people but not to you. Uh, or maybe it's just, maybe we can just use the easier language. Maybe we can just say we're just all really weird. Everyone's a freak. Another way of saying that we all want to be happy is that we're all in some degree of pain. There's a low hum of pain that resonates through all human communities. You know, Russell Brand, whose wonderful book, um, Recovery, we quoted from a lot this year, but he says, what I used to think of as happiness was just distraction from the pain. What is pain? It's wanting something that you don't have, using something to take the edge off. Uh, our, our pain is usually manifest not in some sense of I'm in pain, dad or mom, but in that I'm restless, that I have an itch right now to check my phone because there's something unsatisfactory about the present moment. There's a hole that demands to be filled. What Alba here knows is that everyone's a freak and that weakness is what binds us together. That's where connection is found. Not in holding a certain position most purely, but in the inability to hold any position consistently. That's where you will love another person. This is why Philip Melanchthon wrote that the Christian will acknowledge that nothing is less in his power than his heart. It's true. And yet today, as one my brother Simeon writes, the main moral discourse may even take the form of we've just got to listen to each other. You've just got to walk. It's the injunction to walk a mile in my shoes, brother. Just take a seat at the table. The, the, the main moral discourse today, in other words, is formal compassion a lot of times. We're advocating for the outsider. We're advocating for dialogue. 
But the instrument is always law. It's always coercion and uh, exhortation and force. And therefore it backfires. And the more you feel like you have to stop excluding or dividing is the more you will. It's true. It's accomplishing the opposite of what it intends. Now let's look at what Jesus says. Because I, this, everyone talks about it as being the hard verses in Luke 12. And I think it's, it is hard. Luke 12, 50 to 52. He's talking to his disciples and he says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. And what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I've come to bring priests on to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. Not peace, but division. Does this negate, by the way, peace on earth to men of goodwill? Does it negate thou shalt beat their, their swords into plowshares or love thine enemies, do good to those who persecute you? I don't think it negates it. I think, in fact, it's a deeper meaning than what we've often commonly associated with because Christ, just a few lines earlier, tells the story of a man trying to achieve peace on his own through material gain and it failing miserably through his you know, stockpiling of grain and whatnot. And peace through our own efforts and our own self-justification, our own getting it together doesn't really work. It never has and never will. And here Jesus is talking about family divisions. What are the nature of your family divisions? There's usually pain, hurt, rejection. Oftentimes it's played out in the form of you're wrong and I'm right. How could you be so wrong when I am so right? How could I be so right when you're so wrong? The context in which division is caused when it comes to Jesus, uh, who puts everyone on the side of the wrong. It is a division and a turning against family whose form is is not self-righteousness, smugness, self-certainty, or slimy piety, but weakness. These are the the ties that bind us. Defeat, uh, hurt. In other words, the division that Jesus brings is not the generic being right and everyone else is wrong, but it's caused by an ethic in which you must lose your life in order to save it. The only divide, the division that he brings is the one that heals. This is why the dichotomizing is so uh, um, erroneous and uh, hurtful when it comes to all of the different divides you can name, except, what am I gonna say? The one between the law and the gospel. Because the divide between the law and the gospel actually puts you all on the wrong side of that divide. It unites you in your common failure, in your weakness, which means love. Now, speaking of love, have you watched the show Love? It's, 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 it's you know, it's Judd Apatow, so uh, it's, a lot, it's on Netflix. There's only three seasons of it. But what Love, the show, teaches us is that um, it's about two very messed up people finding each other. And at first you think that the person who is, this is a spoiler alert, but it's a romantic comedy, so you all know how it ends. The, um, it, first you think that the person who is difficult and impaired and really in need of fixing is the addict 
who's the woman named Mickey, played brilliantly by Jillian Jacobs. And she is a uh, substance, uh, she's an alcoholic and a sex addict, and she's in all sorts of recovery. And she's very difficult to get along with. She's got all sorts of mood swings, and uh, she's very angry. And what you find out through the course of the show is that Gus, who's the man who seems to be the really good one, who's kind of helping her. He views himself as a little bit of a savior, uh, protecting her, loving her. Uh, You watch as it turns out that his addiction is simply to being uh, the good one and pleasing other people and never upsetting anyone. And it's only they are breaking up, they're finally going their separate ways. And this drives Gus to such a point of desperation that he says, Uh, he comes clean about everything, who he really is. And who he is is a person who's incredibly afraid of letting anyone else down, of telling his parents how he really feels about them, of telling his, his girlfriend about how he really feels about her. And you think, oh my goodness, she's finally laid his cards on the table, she's gonna leave. But she falls in love with him like that, and they get married. And it wasn't gonna happen until... The law had done its final work and he was a dead man and he'd, he'd let go of justifying himself, of pleasing other people and trying to leverage love from someone on the basis of his abilities. But once those things were out of the picture, love rushed in. Now, what about Jesus? Because, you know, um, uh, he walked a mile in our shoes he is the ultimate, that's what is the incarnation, except for someone who actually knows what it's like to be you. Oh, how he knows. Well, Christ brings peace on the other side of that division on which we are all found guilty. And he brings it not just through losing and surrender, but death itself. And he's, he refers to this when he talks about baptism. You know, because he's already been baptized. In that passage, he says, what does he say? Um, he says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. And what stress I am under until it is completed. What are you talking about? We all read, a, we all read when you got baptized, when John the Baptist did. And you don't even need to be baptized anyway. It's a little bit strange. Well, there is a different baptism to which he is referring and it's the one that we know, that, we, that he refers to when he talks to James and John, his disciples, and says, are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And it's not a baptism of failure, of transgression, or surrender. It's a baptism of fire and of wrath. The full weight of the wrath of God falling on him. He doesn't disregard the judgment of the law, do us for his, our divisive, self-justifying, unloving ways, but he welcomes it onto his shoulders. He allows himself to be divided from the Father, and in doing so, he overcomes the great divide, the divide that the law has put in place, the divide of pride, of overattachment, of division itself, telling us, to answer the prayer that Alan posted last night, I forsake you, Lord, please do not forsake me, the response we get back is, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
And that is the note I want to end on, but it's not a note that I can articulate half as clearly as W.H. Auden did in his prose poem, Caliban to the Audience. And I had not come across this until this past week, and a friend of a Mockingbird writer named Josh Redderer uh, brought it to my attention. But he found um, a recording uh, of Robert Capon reading the two paragraphs with which I want to close this conference. So let's hear from Robert rather than from Dave, and let's hear from Whiston rather than Robert, and let's hear from God rather than any of those jokers. Now it is over. No, we have not drifted. End of a book. Here we really are. Here we really stand. Downstage with red faces and no applause. No effect, however simple. No piece of business, however unimportant, came off. There was not a single aspect of our whole production, not even a huge stuffed bird of happiness for which a kind word could however patronizingly be said. Yet, at this very moment, when we do at last see ourselves as we are, neither cozy nor playful, but swaying out on the ultimate wind-whipped cornice that overhangs the unabiding void, we have never stood anywhere else. When our reasons are silenced by the heavy, huge division, there is nothing to say, there never has been. And our wills chuck in their heads, there is no way out, there never was. It is at this moment that for the first time in our lives, we hear not the sounds which as born actors we have hitherto condescended to use as an excellent vehicle for displaying our personalities and looks, but the real word, which is our only raison d'etre. Not that we have improved. Everything, the massacres, the whippings, the lies, the twaddle, and all their carbon copies are still present more obviously than ever. Nothing has been reconstructed. Our shame, our fear, our incorrigible staginess, all wish and no resolve, are still, and more intensely than ever, all we have. Only now it is not in spite of them, but with them, that we are blessed by that holy other life from which we are separated by an essential, emphatic gulf of which our contrived fissures of mirror and proscenium arch, we understand them at last, are feebly figurative signs, so that all our meanings are reversed. And it is precisely in its negative image of judgment that we can positively envisage mercy. It is just here among the ruins and the bones that we may rejoice in the perfected work which is not ours. Its great coherences stand out through our secular blur in all their overwhelmingly righteous obligation. Its voice speaks through our muffling banks of artificial flowers and unflinchingly delivers its authentic molar pardon. Its spaces greet us with all their grand old prospect of wonder and wit. The working charm is the full bloom of the unbothered state, the sounded note 
is the restored Sounded note is the restored relation. Praise God. Amen.